Queen's Return on Innovation podcast. This podcast is about sharing the success stories and lessons learned from experts and entrepreneurs from Queen's in Eastern Ontario. Okay, everybody, welcome to this version of Queen's Return on Innovation podcast. We are thrilled to have Neil Wainwright join us. Neil has an electrical engineering degree from Queen's, spent a little time in the corporate technology sector, but has been a serial entrepreneur with eight startups, like count them, eight. Most recently founder and CEO of UpHabit. UpHabit is a personal CRM for thoughtful super connectors. Neil has bootstrapped his way through multiple businesses and has raised private equity VC investments. He's also actively involved in coaching and mentoring the next generation of Canadian entrepreneurs. So Neil, welcome. We appreciate uh, walking through one of your company stories. I guess you have to pick which one. First question is, what's in one's DNA to want to take on eight cracks at startups? I think it's a lack of intellect and intelligence, quite honestly. I started, uh, I graduated, I think it was 22 in Science 84, which is, sounds ancient to everybody. It's probably your grandparents' graduation year. And I, I lasted about three years at the R&D group for Nortel, and then I went to work for Nortel. But then I just thought, you know, it's taken them nine months to promote me, and I thought I could start be a startup next the next day and be a CEO. So I thought I'd jump a few levels and become a CEO instead of waiting for Nortel to give me a promotion, which was stuck in HR for almost a year. Just frustrated with the pace of corporate, you felt you could be just innovative on your own. Which of the eight should we talk about uh, to, to go through your journey so that students can get a better appreciation from the process and maybe learn from any lessons or words of advice you have as you go through the different stages of developing a product and getting MVP and going to market and all those things? Yeah, I'd probably say that uh, my my prior one to this one it's, was a company called, and it still exists, called Nexonia, N-E-X-O-N-I-A. Um, they're a B2B expense management platform, so if you travel on business and fill out expense reports, uh, we were the best on the planet, and actually, I still consider the product the best on the planet but I haven't owned it for five years. Sounds like a good one. So let's start with that one. When that company got started, what was the burning problem or, or customer issue you were looking to address with that? Well, it's kind of, it's really interesting, Jim, because what had happened is I, I had, you know, I built businesses and prior to that, obviously, that was my seventh and now I'm on eight. And one of the ones, things that I'd done along the way is I'd become a consultant and I would just do like tech, IT, software development, consulting, to kind of pay the bills while I worked on ventures or maybe just as my full-time job. And I found that there was never an, a, an expense management and timesheet product that worked really well. And just prior to starting Nexonia, I had a small consulting business that I did sell in the dot-com era. I sold it in 1999. And we always struggled with how do we track the consultant's time and expenses. So it came out of the personal need or a personal gap that I saw in the market. And I wanted to I wanted to solve that. So a lot of it, it has to come from within. And in that, that case, it was that's the reason why. We, we often hear great success stories of founders that start companies based on a problem they themselves have had. So you start right out of the gate with the so-called founder market fit where you're experiencing the pain point yourself. And so with that idea, what was the genesis of pulling a team together and deciding on building a product and figuring out what the smallest product you'd need to start getting traction in your particular market segment. How did all that unfold? Well, playing, I was on a beach volleyball team with my company. And um, one of the guys that was playing in the beach volleyball team, we were having beer after a game. And he looked at me and said, we should do something. We do a, build a company together. And I said, oh, sure. I got an idea. And I said, it's this. He said, that sounds like a good idea. 
And we said, okay, let's just write some code and sell it to Google in six months and retire. It didn't quite happen that way. It, we took 18 months to get our product right before we launched it in the market. And I will tell you that the revenue was basically flat, which means when you start at zero, it's mostly zero, for about five or six years. And back in that day, there weren't VCs, there wasn't angel investors, nowhere near what there is today. But even then, we just bootstrapped it. And what we did, which is interesting, is in order to pay the bills, we both acted as independent tech consultants on our own to pay our personal bills so that we could write code on evenings and weekends and uh, until it got to reach um, what happened, which turned out to be a doubling in revenue and a true revenue hockey stick about five or six years later. So it started doubling every year. So would you describe it as it was a company, but it ended up being your side hustle. So you used consulting to pay the bills until you could nurture it along enough. And so when you have a, a flat curve or a flat revenue line for five, four or five years, what things were you doing behind the scenes to sort of find that gold vein so that uh, you ended up starting get, getting customers and, and getting repeatable revenue for that hockey stick that you experienced? Well, back when we started, you know, SaaS wasn't really a thing. So we were a SaaS platform to do expenses and it didn't really hardly exist. Um, it didn't exist as a term, I don't believe, back in then. Was we started writing code in 2002. Uh, we launched in 2004. And um, we just kept, you know, we'd get a few little customers, we'd add a little bit of revenue. They were all shocked. Like I would literally, we had logging in our, it was a web interface initially, where I would get notified the second someone threw an error anywhere in the world, I would reach out to them on email and I'd say, oh, hi, you know, Tom or, or Jane. Um, we saw that you had an error. We've actually found the error. We've fixed the error. We've tested the fix and it'll be deployed and released in another 15 minutes. And they would just, it was just remarkable the reactions I would get from people. They'd be like, are you spying on me? Like, how did you know? I didn't tell you. I'm like, no, no, no. We had logging. So we knew what it was. We knew where it was. And we were sorry that we had the issue and we fixed it. But they were just shocked at um, how responsive we were. And this is our side gig. Uh, we just kept adding um, features and capabilities along what we felt was the vision. And one of the inflection points was actually um, when Apple released the App Store in 2008, we were one of the first apps in the world. On the first day of the launch, which was July 10th, 2008, there was 552 apps in the world. Our company was one of them. Well, I can just imagine the logistics to be in the App Store on day one. So new product, new phone, new segment, probably a new language, mobile, native apps, et cetera. I mean, that, that had to have been a real challenge to be there at the starting line. Well, and for all of you know, all of the students that are in software development, imagine your APIs changing dramatically every beta release, which is what would happen. They keep changing the syntax on us and blowing up our app between releases. We did have one person dedicated to us from Apple because with 552, they could afford to, you know, spend some of their employee resources kind of helping us through the um, review process and what they wanted to see on the App Store and all that kind of stuff. But it was still pretty remarkable and it was very early. We actually got hundreds of one-star reviews from people that didn't understand what a SaaS product was. And they were like, wow, it says it's free, but you really have to pay them on the server side to use their product. One star for you. <laughs> and we had a ton of those. And then um, things matured years later and I actually emailed all of our users when we had tens and hundreds of thousands of people and said, hey, 
we've got all these one-star reviews. Can you guys just flood the app store with what you really think of us? And all of a sudden we went up to like four and a half out of five or something because everybody really liked our product. It was just these early adopters that got mad because we, we, we were free, but not really free. What's interesting that you were starting a, a company before SaaS was a thing, if I could call it that. And then on top of that, people using the mobile phone to start doing things like reporting their expenses and whatnot. Now you wouldn't think twice about it, but I assume back then it was a hurdle to get over if it was a companion to your, your online product. Yeah, no, it was revolutionary. And, and it um, and we did approvals on the mobile, like, you know, basically swipe Tinder for app, you know expense approvals. So a receipt would pop up, the manager would be able to say yes or no. I don't know if we had the swipe functionality, but basically everything but that. And then they could just approve or reject on a line item. And they really, the managers were thrilled. The, the salespeople would, you know, do their expenses on a plane. They would, when they landed and they got signal, they would send in, send in their expenses for approval. The manager might have approved it and finance might have approved it before they even left the port. Back when we were all, you know, back when we were all in airports. And so as you're going through that time, talk about how much time you would have spent talking to customers and building code. When you, when you look at some of the, the best startup practices you hear, and I, I mentioned this on, on most of these interviews I ask is Y Combinator and Paul Graham saying, in an early stage of a startup, you should be doing two things, talking to your users and building your product. And that's it, you know, going back and forth between two things. Would you, would you say that's a fair, fair mantra to think about? Yeah. Ignore everything else. I mean, honestly, uh, I, I've always in my entire career obsessed over my customers and, you know, I had, I've had stories from competitors after I sold my business where they said they would walk up to my, my customers or my partners in trade shows. And they would say, they would look up at my competitor's badge. This was uh, Expensify, you might've heard of them. Look up at my competitor's badge and they would just say, I'm with Neil. And then they'd walk away. <laughs> um, it was pretty amazing to hear those. And I heard the stories from my competitor after I sold the business. So it was like dealing with a brick wall, trying to penetrate uh, our customer base because we were so obsessive over them. And you know, when it comes to code writing, um, I wrote all the original UI when it was back in HTML. I didn't do the Ajax side of it. We would just obsess over features and we would add features almost on a daily basis for over a dozen years. And because of that, nobody could compete with us. And we hit product market fit around when mobile started to take off. And we also built integrations with third parties, which really drove a lot of business towards us. And I often, often coach new startups on uh, building deep integrations to accelerate their reach and their, their growth. Because oftentimes people will have some base system, you know, whatever you want to call it, and saying, well, I can't use your product because we have this main thing and you got to work in it around it. So you're saying a primary driver for customer acquisition was resolving that barrier by saying we could integrate with your system and, and save you a bunch of time and make it more convenient. Yeah, like I remember um, we won, one of the last companies we won before I sold it was Slack. <laughs> I didn't know who Slack was when I, I didn't know who Slack was when I won their business. It was pretty funny. <laughs> um, but I, and they said, you should integrate with us. And I'm saying to my engineers, oh, should we integrate with them? What do these guys do? Um, kind of funny these days to think of it. And that was about six years ago. And, but they, I got on a call with them and I had my, my, my sales team and my, my, the rest of my team. And we were talking to them and they had, they use an ERP platform, an accounting system called NetSuite. And I said, um, I, I remember distinctly getting on the call with them saying, okay, so now you're going to play stump the vendor. You guys use NetSuite. 
we have the deepest integration on the planet by you know a logarithmic scale versus anybody else so the answer is yes and they said what do you mean i said well the answer is yes because i probably already have the features you're about to ask me about and number two um if if we don't have a feature that you asked me about. I'm going to go, that's a great idea. We're going to build it and have it available in 30 days for you. So then they proceeded to play stump the vendor. They laughed and they tried to, they, and, and it was impossible. We literally had everything they wanted out of the box and we could onboard a customer like Slack in, in, um, in under 60 minutes, under an hour, when our competitors would take six to nine months to do an implementation lots of exporting of flat files and stuff and then it still wouldn't be really well integrated whereas us i remember going to um, a company called pure storage in cupertino california um, kind of near the end so i was but i was still traveling and, and visiting potential customers and i remember setting up pure storage in 45 minutes in their offices down in the valley in cupertino and they were just shocked that it was that simple but we just wrote a lot of software to make the automation highly configurable and and um, very easy to enable. Wow, that's an impressive difference between the onboarding process you had and some of your competitors. I was gonna say, when we won Marketo, they wouldn't believe us. They used the product called Sage Intact and they wouldn't believe us when I said it was that fast. Um, and I had to go and I told them it would take an hour, but it turned out the next week when we tried it on their test account that it only took 45 minutes, so I was wrong. <laughs> um, but we won them as a customer too. I didn't, by the way, I didn't know who Marketo was when I won Marketo. I have a, I have a really good pattern of not understanding how important and, and high stature my customers are before I win them. It seems like it's worked out for sure. Uh, Neil, you talked about product market fit and that's something you can imagine when you're an early stage company, that's one of the elusive goals. What do you describe as product market fit and how did you know you were getting it? It's when everybody you know, wants your product. Um, it, it, it's the customers that'll, you know, they, I remember being at a Sage Intact trade show uh, about seven or eight years ago. And I, at the beginning of a, of a conference, it was a conference, they'll typically have a, a night before kind of cocktail hour where there's an open bar and people are mingling. And I remember being on one side of the room, it was outdoors and walking through the crowd to get to the bar to get a beer. And all I heard was my company's name in every conversation as I walked through the crowd. And I, I thought we'd done something wrong, you know? And as a CEO, I should have kind of known and I didn't think we did anything wrong, but all I heard was my company name. And sure enough, when we got to the trade show the next day, um, we had this little 10 by 10 booth and people were stacked up, you know, 10 to 12 people long, waiting to talk to one of us because they all wanted to use our product. So you describe product market fit as People are spontaneously talking about your product. It solves a pain point. Customers are delighted. Is it? Is it more of a? I mean, I guess you'll see the numbers because customer uh, customer growth is going up. But is it something you know it when you see it? It's one of these things we always have a challenge describing to startups to say, well, it's almost like if you're asking us if you have product market fit, you probably don't. You don't. Yeah, and and if you do, you're too busy running around supporting new and more and more new customers to even think about it. At least that's the case with me. When I sold the business, I sold it five years ago now, and I sold it to private equity. And after I sold it, I was kind of decompressing after 15 years of doing what I had done. And I, I actually, for fun, plotted the revenue of the company. And it turned out I had a hockey stick. <laughs> I didn't know it when I was living it, 
but it literally the slope of the curve kept increasing every year for five years. And it was actually almost pointed straight up at the time they bought me, which was a really good thing. But um, I didn't even notice it when I was in it because I was too busy trying to keep the wheels on the bus while we were changing tires and all that other stuff. It was um, when you're going that fast, you don't have time to think about, you know, a lot of the stuff that you think about after. Tell us about some of the things you had to do as you started going up to the steep portion of the curve. Presumably you're growing the size of the team and you're getting more structured sales process. It's not just as an, as a startup, all the founders are wear the sales hat. What kind of things did you, you do that work well and, and people can think about that they're, when you're starting out, be mindful of these things because as you go through different thresholds of revenue and growth, the organization grows and change and it's important to keep the wheels on the bus kind of as you've described. Yeah, the, the best thing I can say is that the founders will all, almost always be the best salespeople for the company. Um, and that I was 150 employees when I sold it. Um, and still, I was involved in the Slack call. I was involved in Pure Storage call, you know, uh, Marketo. I don't know, all these, all these companies that we were had as, as customers. So, you're all, you, you know, thinking you can hand it off to a sales team is not uh, going to work for quite some time. Um, you're going to be involved because you can speak very eloquently about the business. Um, the other thing is when you hit about 20 employees, you'll find that HR issues start to pop up. You never thought you'd have to face in your entire life and they will happen on a fairly regular basis for whatever reasons. It's just, it's just um, for all of you that remember the game Whack-A-Mole in the Midways, being a startup founder is like Whack-A-Mole. And what I worry about also with younger entrepreneurs is that it's it's really chaotic and it's actually even more fast-paced now than it was when I first started out. The, the challenge is there's so many things early stage startups can be doing in a day. It's it's almost a question of prioritizing which ones to do to keep you focused on, you know, building your product so that users love it and you start getting on that flywheel. Yeah. So what, what kind of advice would you give to early stage startups that you know you think back to the to the start of uh, this company? What, what kind of things would you advise early stage startups to say, how, how do I keep myself on track? Well, we always built whatever features our customer wanted, but we always built them in a configurable way. That's why we actually got to scale so quickly. The main thing is it's a grind. Um, you'll make a, a ton of mistakes. As long as you make one less mistake than you do things right, you'll win. Um, make sure you're surrounded by peers um, that, and these are fellow founders, CEOs, you know, mentors and all this stuff. Because it is a it is a pretty rough ride being a startup founder. There's a lot of highs, but even more lows uh, along the journey, and you got to stay sane. For me, my first business uh, out of Queens, I uh, I would pull two all-nighters a week for about five years, <laughs> building my business, not one but two. So it's 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 a lot of work and it's a lot of heavy lifting, and you should be prepared for it. But also, one other thing I'll say is don't go down with the ship. So if your business is failing, if it's going to crater, that's okay. You can start another one the next month. You can take off a year, go work for someone, and then uh, come back at it. But don't feel like your entire self-worth is tied up in your business because it isn't and it shouldn't be. Like my big win was my seventh business. Now, everybody's smarter than me, so it's going to happen in your first to third business, but it's not typically going to be your first one. Yeah, that's great advice. What type of things would you you consider when you're forming co-founders? Well, first off, the question I ask on some of these interviews, would you ever recommend somebody be a solo entrepreneur? Um, well, with Up Habit, I'm a solo entrepreneur. Um, 
my last venture, I had a co-founder who is like the um, the technology, the tech genius. I wrote co I wrote UI stuff, but he was a genius at the back end and on making things work. Um, you know, they, there's there's pluses and minuses to both. I think when you're younger, you basically need co-founders, but you're getting into a marriage with very little possibility of divorce. I guess with investors, it's less possibility of divorce. Founders can go their separate ways, but it typically means that you're going to crater the business or you'll get mired in legal stuff that's not survivable. It's always a bit of a, a risk. And I don't really have one way I'd advise or the other. Just do what's right, what you think is right for you. So having built, worked on eight companies, presumably all from the Toronto area, right? I don't think you lived in the US. You were in Toronto for most of the time. Yep. What, what are your comments on the, the tech and innovation landscape in Canada? I mean, over the course of your career, startups is a lot. You know, what do you think is going well? And what are your sort of top two, three pieces of advice if there are students thinking about tackling a startup? Well, I would... I would just make sure um, the, the 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 startup scene is quite vibrant. You know, I'm not a big fan of you know when Twitter opens an office and Google big, makes a bigger office because that just sucks talent out of the ecosystem. Um, and then you're working for an American company, um, but it, it's a really vibrant thing. But don't think that you can just you know do a little business plan with a slide deck and then you know you're going to get a whole bunch of investors piling in. Yeah, friends, family, maybe. But the main thing is to build a product as cheaply and as quickly as you can, get it into users' hands, and then keep iterating on it. And, and, and then all of a sudden, you'll have people that decide they want to pay you for it. If you don't hit that and you run, but the other thing I would say is make sure you have a source of income so you can survive, whether it's doing Uber, whether it's doing what I did, which is consulting. It's always nice to have runway. Um, I see, I've seen a lot of founders with only three months to go before they run out of cash. And I know they're going to run out of cash and then they're going to have to drop their startup and, you know, get a day job. From your perspective, nothing wrong with having it as a side hustle, if I could call it that, until you've built an MVP and you've got a real idea of who your users are and people are starting to pay you for it. Yeah. Like when I, okay, here's the story. When I sold my business five years ago, um, the private equity company said, well, what's your cap table? You know, I almost didn't know what a cap table was, right? But I said, I, I said, yeah, I said, I own 55% and that other guy owns 45%. And they said, but that adds up to 100. I'm like, yeah, so start writing the checks. You know, if you start bringing in investors, you get diluted, diluted, diluted. And they also have the right to tell you what to do because they're paying you a lot of money to invest in your business. I find it more fun just to kind of chart my own path. And when the checks get written, they don't get split up that much. Now with Uphabit, a lot more of my checks will go to team members and people have supported me along the way. Um, but anyways, you know, hold on to your equity. Hold on to your equity is one thing I preach consistently everywhere, all the time. Right. You really can't go wrong if you're bootstrapping and funding yourself through revenues you generate from the business versus taking equity, which as you say, you get venture capitalists that have nothing, you know, for certain businesses, it's a great way to go. But they have their own set of objectives in terms of getting a return, right? So if you can control your own destiny with revenue and grow keeping your equity yourself, that's always a good place to think about. If you own all the business, you sell it for 5 million, that's that's a pretty big life-changing event if it's, it's only split one way or one or two ways. Um, and if you sell it for 50, 100, 500 million, you just do the math and it's it's really lucrative for, for the founders. And I'm a, I do everything I can to help founders. 
And I have a lot of friends that are VCs, so I, it's not that I don't like VCs. I just think that um, you know my focus is the success of the founder. And by the way, anybody can reach out to me at any time. If you, when you share this, feel free to share my um, my Calendly invitation, and anybody can book time with me whenever they want. That's very generous of you. We'll absolutely take you up on that, Neil. It's been absolutely wonderful chatting with you. Just an amazing story. Eight times startups, all from Canada. I mean the. We've just touched on a few of them, but I can imagine the stories you've got uh, along the way of building all those businesses. Uh, hopefully, the, the students and grad students listening to this will have uh, learned something they can apply to their own business. So really appreciate you taking the time with chatting. My pleasure. It was, a, it was a real pleasure, and I wish all the students great success in their careers.